This is the CR England Family Podcast, hosted by Chad England and Josh England. I'm Chad England. And I'm Josh England. And this is our first CR England Family Podcast. This podcast is something we will do periodically, and our intent is to create something interesting and entertaining for our team at CR England. It certainly isn't required, but we hope you enjoy it. We will regularly have guests who talk about a variety of topics. We'll bring you behind the scenes and share interesting and funny stories with you. But let's introduce ourselves just a bit. I'm Chad, and I'm the oldest of four brothers in the ownership family. I've worked at Sierra England for most of my life. My current role is CEO. I'm married with three kids, and when I'm not working, I enjoy hiking and the outdoors. I'm really into football. I've coached my boys in Little League football, and I'm doing so now. And I'm Josh. My current role is president of the company, and I started working here as a kid, moving around through various parts of the business. I began repairing trucks in the shop, worked in a variety of office roles, and I and my brothers, we all enjoy getting out on the road regularly and hauling freight. I am married with three kids, and in my spare time, I love to play the guitar. Uh, My favorite band to play their songs is the Beatles. But this podcast really isn't about us. It's about people at CR England and their experiences. And we have a really special guest for this podcast. A legend in the industry and one of my favorite people. Our guest today is our grandfather, Gene England. He is 97 years old and he still comes to work every day. Gene and his brother Bill are the sons of Chester Rodney or CR England. They are the ones that led the company for about 50 years. They changed it from a one truck operation to a fleet. In this podcast, we'll hear about Gene's childhood in Plain City, Utah, and his experience in World War II. You'll hear a bit of company history intertwined with his life. We hope you enjoy it. So, Granddad, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. How are you today? I'm feeling good. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Why Why don't you tell us your story? Well... The little town of Plain City was an unusual community. It was a kind of a hub, and uh, there were a lot of little smaller settlements around that uh, would come to Plain City for, well, we had a lot of sports activities there, ball games and things like that, and then we had a big dance hall for recreation, Plain City was kind of an important place in that area. We also uh, had a lot of patriotic things going on in our little town. The teachers in the schools were uh, very active in letting us know just how lucky we were to be living in this wonderful country. And uh, I think that was an attitude that was on everybody's mind. Our country was just the best there was. And uh, I, I think Plain City at that time, we had some real great guys. They were patriotic. They were uh, solid citizens that wanted the best for our land. It was so much of a pleasure for me to uh, to go back years later and uh, visit with those guys. The community was always a kind of a place that uh, you felt like you belonged. 
it was a pleasant experience to grow up there. And uh, four trucking companies sprung from that little town, and they now employ 36,000 people. 36,000 jobs came out of that little community. That community of 600 people at the time. Yeah. <laughs> my dad was my buddy in so many ways. And uh, as, as we worked into the business and did more work with him, it was quite a job for a kid to do, but it was the greatest thing in my life to be able to do it and to learn how to do those things. Was this when you first started driving when you were 14? Oh, no. How old were you when you first started driving? Well, I'll tell you a story about 1928. We had a new Essex, What's Essex, Essex car. Okay. They don't make them anymore, but it was Hudson Motor Company that, that made the okay, Essex. Yeah. At that time, that year, Dad was farming. He'd bought a farm, and uh, and we had a crop of potatoes that was now ready to harvest. And uh, so there was a crew out there uh, to pick up the potatoes and the digger and the, the horses to pull the digger where everything was ready to go. And so now we're digging the potatoes and they're falling on the ground behind the digger and the, the people that are picking them up and they'd pick them up in baskets or buckets even, but they had to have sacks scattered out down the field so that as they picked up and got their basket full, they could come over and pour it into the, into the sack. So Dad said, here, get in this car and drive down through the field and scatter those sacks every distance you estimate is about right. And how old were you? I was nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, I wasn't driving on the on the road, but <laughs> he believed in kids, and he not only believed in them, he let them do it. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, he was uh, he was our hero. So, going back to fourteen years old, you said he trusted you to have the responsibility to to take that load and deliver to the grocers and all that. I'd usually have a buddy with me, or even Bill. Now, of course, Bill was three and a half years younger than me, but if for no other reason, just company, he'd go along with me. And uh, if there were five sacks to be carried into the store, he'd always arrange that he only carried two. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you'd go up to Idaho and back, or how far would you go? Yes, uh, the end of the course was Preston, Idaho, uh, and that would be about 75 miles away. And what we would do, uh, we'd start out with 100 bags, and we had stores all the way up where we'd just call on them and, and uh, ask them if they wanted potatoes today. That's where it went, and by the time we got to Preston, we had to be sold out. We wanted to be sold out because these potatoes were very fresh. They were new potatoes. The skin on them was very slippery. If you didn't get them sold in a week, they wouldn't be very good. 
Idaho, because of the uh, the need for young people to help harvest the crops and so on, they had allowed a 14-year driver's license to be issued, and I had one of them. So you say Plain City was a patriotic place. Uh, what kind of participation did Plain City have in World War II? I always felt like it was. I felt like we all felt a responsibility to our country, if we were called. And uh, I was very pleased to realize here just a couple of years ago, they put up a monument in the cemetery in Plain City. And I went back up there and uh, found out that it definitely was a, a patriotic little town. Out of a town of 600 people at that time, there were 72 that served in the Army. There were 40 that served in the Navy. There were 12 that served in the Marines and one nurse. That's 119 people out of that size town. I'm convinced that the patriotism was very high in the town. Could you tell us about your experience in the war? Yes. Uh, my father-in-law, Rex O'Daniels, was a commanding officer of the uh, National Guard in Spanish Fork. And in 1941, the war was going on in Europe, uh, but we were not in it yet. Uh, but they called up the National Guard to go to San Luis Obispo, California. And uh, they went down, he and his wife went down with the guard and lived in San Luis Obispo. After a certain length of time, June and I decided to go down and visit them down there. And, uh, and I took a job with the Army managing the post exchange that served the Utah Guard. And uh, we were there, in fact, when the uh, Japanese struck Pearl Harbor. And that was in December 7th of, of 1941. Sometime the next year, the Army called the, the Utah National Guard to go up to guard the Presidio in San Francisco. So they left San Luis Obispo. And uh, so June and I decided to come back uh, to Utah. And uh, I was, of course, waiting around for them to call me up. But uh, Dad and I were, were running a couple of trucks uh, hauling gravel into the 2nd Street Ordnance Depot in Ogden. And this one day I was driving with the window down and a rock flipped from another truck and went in and skinned my eyeball. And the funny thing is that rock hit me. I was afraid maybe it disabled me and I won't be able to serve. And at that moment I knew that I wanted to. Well, I needn't have worried about that. The Army wanted you. <laughs> and, uh, when I was called into the service, uh, I was called back to Fort Hood, uh, Texas, and uh, we were civilians, and we were going there to have them make us into soldiers. And I'll have to agree or have to say that they 
did a pretty darn good job of hammering us into soldiers. It wasn't easy. But they, uh, the cadre was pretty rough. They, uh, they were there to toughen you up, and, uh, and that's what they did. It was tough going, and they, they were working as far as running and uh, learning how to be a soldier. And I appreciate what they did, because when I was called, or when we were shipped out of there, when we'd finished our course, and I was given a five-day delay en route to stop home as I reported into Fort Ord, California, it was a good thing that I'd had that training. We then went to, were shipped out to Seattle, and from there to Hawaii, and then eventually on to Saipan. When we got to Saipan, the island had not been completely cleared of the enemy. There were still some soldiers around out there, and so it was uh, there was some risk of being hit by fire. But it was a distribution point, and it was there that we learned that uh, Okinawa was going to be our destination. And uh, we were shipped to Okinawa. When we arrived at Okinawa, it was a hubbub of activity. The beachhead had been made. People were on the island. And uh, all kinds of ships in the harbor discharging ammunition, food, and everything we needed for combat. It was there that I found out that I was part of the 77th Infantry Division. I'd been a replacement until I got there. But uh, I was assigned to the 77th, and my first squad sergeant was uh, Robert Battisti. The, uh, the 77th was uh, a New Jersey outfit. It had fought in several wars and was a kind of a noted uh, division. My first assignment was... Uh, to drive stakes into, a, they were setting up a tent to take some of this material that was coming off the ships. So Batiste gave me a mallet and some stakes and said, drive, drive stakes in that tent. And I started doing the job and in about a minute he was back telling me, no, do it this way. And then in another minute he was back doing it this way. Finally, the third time back I said, here, if you think you can do a better job than I'm doing here, take the mallet. <laughs> well, that was the dumbest thing I ever did in the Army of Leave. <laughs> because he was going to be my boss. <laughs> and I defended him. But anyway, the, uh, the Battle of Okinawa was just beginning. And uh, we were soon in it. And uh, the plan... The Army had for Okinawa, since it was 300 miles from Japan, was to clear that island of all the Japanese were on it. That meant wipe it clean, don't leave any pockets. So the plan was to put three divisions, two Army divisions on the outside and the, uh, and the Marines in the middle, and then move down the island, which was a kind of a rectangular island, 
And the plan was to just move down, straight line across the island, and clean it out. We wouldn't move at night. We would, uh, we'd move in the daytime, and then at night we'd be dug in so that anything that moved, we could shoot. Now, right off the bat, we, uh, we had all kinds of dead Japanese around us. It was a horrible, horrible place to be. And uh, you can't imagine how bad combat is until you're in it. But uh, at night, we would be dug in. If we could, we'd be on the reverse slope of a hill so that the small arms fire couldn't come straight at you. The only way they could get you was with mortars or something like that. When we would uh, get dug in, then at night, they would shoot off flares every few minutes so that uh, we could see if there was any Japanese coming through. They uh, didn't take very long to where they were trying to penetrate back through our lines to get behind us. As we were pushing and pushing and they were they were being threatened, so they were trying to get out of there. So you had to stay awake. What we would do, would, uh, we'd, every other one of us would, uh, one would nap and the other one would stay alert so that he could be sure and catch them as they came. So we moved that way for a certain part of the island and kept the line pretty straight. Then uh, this escarpment came up ahead of us, ahead of our division. It was uh, a ridge, a rocky ridge. It was heavily fortified. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't get through it. The airplanes had tried to knock them out and uh, artillery and they were still there. So it was finally decided that since we were holding up the line, we had to get up there and so they decided on a pre-done attack, which I think there may have been another one, but there was no more than two in the whole campaign. And I think it might have been the only one. But at three o'clock in the morning, our company, Company E, was called to move out to this ridge with the they expected was about 850 yards ahead of us. We left at 3 a.m. in the morning but the trail on up to where we were going was full of craters. They'd been pounding the place, and it was uh, it was rough country, and we couldn't move when a flare was going off because they'd, they'd see us. When that flare would go off, you had to just stand. But anyway, uh, we got to the designated point when it was just beginning to start to break day, and we got to digging in and we could see Japanese moving around. They were all, all around us. They were leaving us alone, I guess, because they, they thought we were their people, because we never moved at night. And so we got a break for uh, an hour, maybe, while we got dug in, and then it all broke loose. And uh, for 70 hours, we were under total fire, total battle, and... Uh, at that time, we were, we were dug in in a semicircle, big semicircle. 
And uh, one of our men had been out. He stood up right in that circle and had been hit. He was bleeding and down and couldn't move. And he called for Batiste. Robert Batiste, our squad leader. Well, Batiste was so terrified, so incapable of going out after him. And uh, he kept calling Batiste, Batiste. He wouldn't go. And uh, I don't know why, but I decided I could get him because I didn't think they could get the fire down to the ground the way the country was, was. They could hit us if we were up high, but I thought it was safe on the ground. So I finally went out on my belly and just got a hold of him and pulled him back into my hall so the medics could get a hold of him. And that was during that 70-hour period. Uh, it uh, turned out that uh, there were 129 of us that went up there on that mission, and there were 31 of us came back. It was about a 80% loss. And, uh, but we were credited for the breakthrough. By the time our troops got up there, we were able to continue on. And the, the Battle of Okinawa went on for another 30 days or so, and it was the same thing every day. Just push, dig in, and uh, we finally got to the end of the island. And my understanding is you got uh, an award for, for doing that? Yes. I was awarded the Bronze Star. And by Batiste. That's the kind of unbelievable part of it. <laughs> Tell us, when you're out there, when there's 70 hours where you're just being constantly fired on, when there's weeks and weeks on end when you're in this battle and this push along the island, what are the emotions that come along with that? Like, what was your mindset during that period? Total fear. Your mouth as dry as it can be. You, uh, you never escape the fright. But it's amazing that does something to you that you can, you can function. The adrenaline pumps you. And you, you do things you couldn't do, I think. After you got back from the war, was it difficult to think about or talk about? No. I guess there are some people that, were, that are affected by that, to where it's still a horror in their mind. And I never had that problem. I think it was something you had to do. And it... There is this, it's a little bit amazing that, uh, you know, you still have to have hope. It reigns eternal, I guess. And uh, uh, when things are looking pretty darn bad, you still think, I'm going to get through this. You don't really understand yourself until it's all over. So how much longer were you out there after that battle? Well, that was in June, and I got home a year later.
And then after Okinawa, what was the plan for your company? Well, the uh, they had already caught, before Okinawa was over, the 77th had been called to make the invasion of Japan. So we were sent back to Cebu to train and get ready for the invasion of Japan. And I don't know why they'd selected the the 77th. Some of the, uh, there was some talk that they felt like it was unreasonable that they should be called again that soon. But uh, anyway, that's, that's the way it was. I'd told Bill and I had worked out a deal before, he'd been in the service before I got in and we decided we were going to let us, each other know where we were. And uh, of course, the uh, the mail is always monitored. And uh, we decided on a way to let us know. And it was a very simple, simple code. We just uh, used our middle initial. And after I'd sent Bill three letters, it went from my C, Eugene C, E, B. When he got CEB, he knew I was in Cebu because uh, he knew we were headed for the Philippines. So he's kind of a gambler, but <laughs> he was able to get a, get with the with his commanding officer and get a a break. I didn't know they were making any at that time, but he he was able to get one to come over there to see me and. Uh, so he flew over there and uh, found the company and uh, walked into my tent. I hadn't seen him for three years. <laughs> and we had several days together, two or three days together, actually. It would have been a wonderful, wonderful reunion, but I was still worried about that invasion of Japan. And then the bomb was dropped and the war was over. What a day that was. Where were you when that happened? I don't remember my location exactly, but I was in Cebu in the 77th camp there. Yeah. So then what did your role become after the bomb was dropped? They, uh, they sent us in as occupation troops, and we went to the northern island uh, city of Sapporo, I remember when we pulled in the harbor, the people were, uh, they were wondering what, what was going to be their lot. They were kind of submersive and wondering where, where we're going to be. Well, it didn't take long for the GIs to get friendly with everybody, and they were no more responsible than we were, probably. So you've worked with Bill most of your life. What's your relationship been like with him? It's funny. I'm three and a half years older than Bill. Of course, at one time when he was just a kid, he was, you know, at certain ages you get with your friends and a little brother tagging along, you don't necessarily want that. Uh, so I remember a few of those occasions, but very few and, and not long because we became so friendly, and we just worked together without any kind of disruption. 
Of course, when Bill got home from the service, we found out he was diabetic. And as we started the company, we didn't know just what he could do. We didn't know anything about diabetes. We were hauling bananas out of El Paso, Texas, and uh, Dad was doing that when we came home. And uh, so that was where we, that's what we targeted getting into. And uh, the thing that was happening, Dad was going down there and buying bananas, and bananas were a, and he, they were a commodity that was just not around. The Central American fruit that had come in by ship, the ships were all taken for the air, army effort. So that fruit had dried up. And the only thing that was coming in was this Mexican fruit, a little bit of Guatemala down on the bottom that had come in on the Mexican Railroad. And they came into uh, uh, El Paso, Texas. Dad had been doing that, and uh, so we we decided, well, maybe it was, what what would happen? This Mexican railroad that brought this fruit in, it was it was an undependable railroad. They they'd say the ship or the train will be in at a certain time. Well, maybe it would. It had, they had a lot of breakdown, and so when it came in, it was it was a problem to try to get get your fruit because it was so hot everybody wanted it so we decided maybe we'd leave use bill have him live live in el paso and he could buy the fruit so that we had it when we came came down for it so we tried that out and he lived down there for six months then he changed his mind he decided no i'm gonna i'm gonna live a life just like you are he took his insulin but he worked just like I did. He ate just like I did and, and worked just as hard as I did. And that's been his lot for his whole life. And he's had so many of those. Fern has been so diligent about keeping him alive. Now, Bill and I, we just were 50-50. I, uh, I came back with the money out of the army to uh, to buy the first truck. As far as I was concerned, Bill was half owner. I later got some advantage back from that, but uh, there was never a question that he was 50% owner in it. It's hard to figure out how it all worked out now, but... Uh, uh, and see, we had to do all the other part of the business too. I took on the uh, the work of soliciting. After we got established out in New Jersey, then I would uh, I'd get on a truck and go back there and spend thirty days, maybe a couple of weeks, soliciting. Then I'd get on a truck and come back. So I was I was the salesman, part driver, part salesman. <laughs> Tire fixer, whatever, <laughs> whatever needed to be done. Yeah, we know that. <laughs> I think there's a story about how you had enough money after your service to buy that truck. What's that story? Uh, when I went into the service, I had full intention of coming home and getting in the business. 
doing it better than we'd been able to do it. And uh, right away, I started finding ways to accumulate some money. In fact, when I was down there managing the Post Exchange in California, I had a new car. So I offered it to the Utah boys that were there in the service. If they got a weekend pass, I'd let them take my car for $100. That's clean money for me, 100 <laughs> And they could take that car, and five of them could, for 20 bucks a piece, could come home. Then when I got overseas, the Army was always very generous about uh, issuing tobacco, cigarettes. I don't remember how many packs we got every week, but uh, there was a lot of it. And uh, there was always a place to sell it. The locals over there loved tobacco, and uh, so it was ready money. Then I found out that, that I could buy stamps over there in these big sheets and uh, send it home, and June could take it and go down to the post office and get the money out of them. When I finally got home, I had $5,000 and uh, bought old number one. <laughs> we went into the big truck for Kenworth with a Cummins diesel engine in it, and uh, we'd never even driven one before. First diesel truck, right? First diesel truck, first big truck. And this thing wasn't really equipped and set up to do what I wanted to do, but it was the only truck available I could find. Uh, they weren't making new ones. This truck was six years old and had been hauling concrete pipe. It was a big flatbed uh, with a flat trailer behind it. So it wasn't, wasn't what I needed at all, but uh, I hauled a couple of loads of lumber with it out of Idaho. And then we cut the frame off and shortened it up and put a sleeper on it, 18 inches. That was what the sleeper was, 18 inches. <laughs> and you built it yourself? <laughs> no, no. It was uh, somebody manufactured the dog out thing. <laughs> so an 18-inch sleeper, that's more like a coffin. <laughs> yeah, well, boy, it felt pretty good when you when you got a chance to get away from that wheel and get back in there and sleep. Did you and Bill ever both sleep in there at the same time? We did once, end for end. Head to toe? That was the only way you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> the transition from, from your dad to you and Bill, as far as him being involved in the business in the 40s, 50s, 60s, how involved was he? You know, Bill was the best partner you could imagine. Always the most compatible and helpful. If at any time in my life, if I would needed anything he had, it was available. I'd come up with an idea and if it didn't work, he never grumbled. He was in my camp all the way. And the other day I was up there visiting with him and. He said something that kind of touched me. He said, uh, you know, you're always my big brother. And I just, that was the greatest thing in the world to me. It was a relationship that was awful close. Yeah. 
Talk about um, your sons coming along in the 70s and 80s and uh, that transition. June was so important in this relationship. I spent more time in the business than I should have done. But she was so, so respected and loved by them that uh, there was never any problem with them. And I loved to have them with me. There was just nothing better than having those boys along. Dream come true. Can't beat that. I hope you know how much uh, we all appreciate you and we love you and we're so thankful for what you've done. Uh, the example that you give on a daily basis makes you a hero of ours and we, we just want you to know how much uh, you mean to us. Well, that goes both ways.